The children uh, up through grade age four are released for children's church. If you're in that age demographic, um, you, are, you can go. Um, right now, there'll be teachers waiting outside in the hallway for you. Uh, you'll have a good time. Uh, those of us who are here, we're going to be in John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 36. We talked about this last week, um, at least John chapter 12 last week. We have um, Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. The gospel of John has slowed down considerably. Uh, We're going through really the first almost three years of Jesus' ministry through the first 11 chapters in the Gospel of John, and then everything begins to slow down, and John takes from chapter 12 really through 21, and he goes through the last week, week to maybe 10 days of Jesus' life. And let me reiterate with regard to why he does this. John writes everything that he writes with a specific purpose, and the purpose is this, found in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's not saying they're insignificant. He's not saying they're not important, but rather he is saying that he is writing specifically about the signs and what Jesus has done in this book for this reason. But these, in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe. And that word believe there is this word of trusting, believing that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So everything that John writes about, and especially right here, he's saying, I write these things so that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life. And not only just a life, not only eternal life, but abundant life, a flourishing life. And in the midst of this particular passage, uh, we read last week, about Jesus saying that my hour has now come. The time has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says this, and this is a difficult thing. Some Greeks come to Jesus, and Jesus says this, truly, truly, and again, 25, 26 times in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, truly, truly, he's saying, listen up, listen up. He's foot stomping. He's saying, this is going to be on the exam. Okay? Some of you are in classes all your life, and you didn't pay attention at all until the teacher said, this will be on the test. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, I need to be, you know, this is what he's saying. Truly, truly, he says, um, truly, truly, in John chapter 12, he says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he's talking about is he's talking about his own death there. So in John chapter 12, verses 27, in the midst of the context of him speaking to the Greeks, talking about his own death, revealing to the disciples that the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for his own death to happen. Here's what he says in John chapter 12, verse 27 through 36. He says this, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Jesus is talking about his own glory, but he's also talking about meaning that the Son of Man must be glorified, but he's also speaking about the glory of the Father. And when we think about our purpose in life, those who wrote the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they said, what is man's chief end? What is the purpose for which you have been created? And the answer to that is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the way that we actually enjoy the Lord is through glorifying Him. And and really, that's a model for what Jesus is doing right here. See, Jesus' chief end was to glorify the Father. Our chief end is to glorify and to enjoy the Father. But did you notice what it says in verse 27? Look at, look at your Bibles and see this. But Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now, Jesus is clearly pursuing the glory of the Father, the plan that the Father has had since the foundation of the world to redeem those who would believe through the penal sacrificial atonement of his Son. And so Jesus, all of Jesus, all that he is doing is being leading up to this hour. And yet he says, now is my soul troubled. Let me say this. In the midst of pursuing the glory of God, our souls can be troubled. God may call you to do something that is very difficult and costly. How about this? You ever know the right thing to do and you just don't do it? Like you know it's the right thing to do, but you just say, nah, I'm not going to do it. You see, we are born evaluators. Like we are constantly evaluating and determining what we want to do. I don't mean like on antique roadshow where you're, you, know, you find like an old like ashtray and somebody tells you it's worth like $50,000. I'm saying that we are evaluating situations all in our life to determine whether or not we are going to do it or not do it. And there are times that we know what the right way is, the correct answer. We know this, like we know it's the right thing to do. But we know that if we do it, that there will be a price to pay, and we will have to pay the price, and we are not sure if we are really ready to pay the price of doing the right thing. 
For example, you may say to the Lord, and then, again, this is like sort of your conscience and the Holy Spirit and the flesh and all of these other things working themselves out. You might say, but if I choose to do what you say and walk in your ways, then I will lose my comfort in this world. And I believe that Jesus, or God the Father, says, child of God, this world is not your home. And where you will be for eternity will be much better. Do you believe me? You see, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus in, in the idea of a self-sacrificial life, then you're going to lose your comfort. Anybody here really, really like their comfort? <laughs> Anybody here really not want to? Um, you're like, I'll, I'll just give you my own sinful example, for example. Uh, when we had small children, I remember thinking uh, when I would hear one of the children begin to to cry, and I don't mean like a hurt cry. Like, you know, there's a difference, right? Like when you're a parent, there's a difference between like a hurt cry. Like when there's a hurt cry, like you, 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 you um, get right up and you run to the, to, but like, it's more like the whiny kind of like, I want this kind of cry. I'm kind of upset. I'm fighting with my siblings kind of cry. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? If you have parents, if you're a parent. And, and rather than dealing with that, you know, I don't want to deal with my comfort, you know, because my comfort is, is wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, and I'm just hoping that Katie, my wife, might actually deal with that, or the children in some miraculous event might actually work it out on their own. Never happens like that, you know, although it does happen that Katie would take care of it, and I would, you know, feign being asleep or something like that, um, because I don't, I know the right thing. The right thing is for me to, like, die to self, not do what I'm called to do, and to be the father that God has called me to do. But rather than do that, I would rather be selfish and do what I want to do. I'm sure none of you struggle with that at all, right? I'm sure that's... And yet, we struggle with this. How about this one? If I do what your word says, then I'm going to lose a lot of friends. I may lose my job, I may lose my reputation, I may lose the social capital I have been working on my entire life to accumulate if I do what you want me to do right now, Lord. And I think that the Lord God says, child of God, my ways are better, and would you trust me? Um, would you trust me? How about... Um, how about this one? You know the right thing to do, but you just can't. You know, um, and you say this to God the Father, Father, I have been hurt deeply by this person. I have been hurt deeply by this close family member. And Lord, you don't know what it's like to forgive. I cannot forgive this person person. I know in my mind that the right thing to do is forgive them. I know that Jesus has commanded me to forgive, and yet I can't do it because I'm holding bitterness next to my heart, and that bitterness feels good. You ever been there? You ever been there? You know it's the right thing to do. You know you're supposed to do it, but you just can't do it and your heart is troubled. I think the Lord God says, child of God, I know how you feel, and even more so. Um, 
I've forgiven all. Um, or there might be those of you who have done this in this way. You know, when you think about um, glorifying God in terms of pursuing God, um, in terms of dying to self. But you, you, you think this way. But Lord, I've so often forsaken your ways. My mind is full of wicked thoughts. My heart is often so cold to your word, your works, and the worship of you. How can someone so cold, wicked, and thoughtless walk with you? How can I be forgiven? And I think the Lord God says this in his word. He says, but you are loved and you are forgiven. Your debts are paid. You are released from the bondage of sin. It is finished. Walk with me. Serve beside me. Love what I love and work to restore all things to my life. It is a better way. You know what you have to do, but you don't want to do it. You know what you should do, but you don't want to do it. You know what God has called you to do, but you don't want to do it. Why? Because there is pain involved. There's pain involved in doing what God has called you to do at times. There's discomfort involved. There's sacrifice involved. There's a call to die to self and live for God. And that is hard. And oftentimes our hearts are troubled in that way. You see, Jesus understands what it means to, be, to have a difficult situation in front of him. If you've ever thought that Jesus can't relate, go to this passage. Jesus understands what it means. But, but Jesus, it, but this is so interesting here, because uh, I have to def, you know, describe this. You know, because what, what Jesus is doing is, but Jesus' troubled heart is different than ours because he is sinless. There is no sin found in Jesus. So why is his heart troubled? I mean, think about this. Um, I mean, what he was going through uh, wasn't easy, and, and certainly, like, he's, he knows that he's going to die, but there have been tons of martyrs, I mean, many, many martyrs throughout the course of church history that have gone to death with great faith, with great courage. So are these individuals more courageous than Jesus? Like, for example, we read about the martyr Polycarp, you know, probably in the, the early you know, second century or mid-second century, they were looking to arrest Polycarp. And if you were in the church history, maybe you heard about Polycarp, maybe you hadn't. But Polycarp was 86 years old when they decided to put him to death. Eight, I mean, you're a little late, Romans, right? I mean, 86 years old, but he was such a, um, a witness for, for Jesus. And, but, but Polycarp knew that, you know, it didn't matter. So Polycarp, you know, he was arrested. There were men, police and horsemen surrounded the cottage that Polycarp was there. And they thought this guy must be this, this strong bandit, right? This must be a Superman. This must be somebody who can really push us off. And here's what they found. That evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He was 86 years old. He could have escaped, but he refused saying, God's will be done. When he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and steadfastness, and some of them said, why do we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? Immediately, he called for food and drink for them. Think about this. He called for, he was entertaining those who came to, to put him to death. Like, let's, let's get some food and drink for these guys. These guys have been working hard, right? And then he said this. And then he said, um, he actually asked them, he said, hey, 
They agreed, and he asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed, and he stood and prayed so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. So then they take him, they put him on a donkey, they lead him into the stadium, and there was a, a, the proconsul was there, and he asked, he asked Polycarp, he says um, this to Polycarp, he says, um, I want you to um, have, you know, just basically turn away from Christ. I want you to, to say that Jesus is not God, and having respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And the proconsul said, I have wild animals here, and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. He's 86 years old. So then they, they took Polycarp and they were, uh, put him on a, on a, on a pyre of you know, wood and they were about to, to nail his hands uh, to, the, to the, the, you know, almost crucify him, but not to the same extent. He says, he goes, you don't need to keep me here. There's no need for nails. I'll just stay here. There's no, it's, I'll just stay here. I don't need to be restricted. And so he died. And so he died in faith. And as he, as he was, as the fire consumed him, there was this prayer that is noted, noted to him. He prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with whom through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. Amen. And then probably the next thing is that he met Jesus. <laughs> you see, it was, here's the thing. When we think about Polycarp and we think about his death, does that mean that Polycarp was stronger than Jesus? Did he have greater faith than Jesus? I mean, I mean think about this. In, in John chapter um, 14, Jesus actually says to the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So in, in John chapter 12, when he says, my heart is now troubled, what is it troubled by? Well, um, James Boyce says it like this. It was not physical death he dreaded, but the spiritual death. How could one who had never known one second of unbroken fellowship with his father had never sinned peacefully contemplate that hour in which he should be made sin for us and, and in which the fellowship that he would at least for a time be broken. You see, all the gospels agree in telling us that as the cross drew near, Jesus began to tremble and be deeply troubled. 
He declared that he had a baptism to be, be baptized with, and he prayed three times that the cup he was about to drink might pass from him. And when at last he concludes, yet not as I will, but as you will, this means that in spite of the particular death being the greatest of all horrors, he was nevertheless determined to embrace it fully in fulfillment of the plan of God for our salvation. Now, here's the idea, is that the fellowship with the Father would be broken. Jesus knew that the hour was coming when on the cross he would take the full penalty for sin of all those who would believe. And that the righteous wrath of God, because of the holiness of God, would be poured out upon him. That's when he says, Lord, would you take this cup? This cup is an allusion in the Old Testament to the cup of wrath that would be poured out upon those who are evil. And so what Jesus does on the cross, and this is the beauty, this is the good news, is that Jesus takes all of the wrath of God, the holy righteous wrath of God that was for sin and as as it's poured upon him for all those who would believe. That's what he felt. And then he was separated for a time from fellowship with the Father. That's why his soul is troubled. I don't think Jesus feared death. I don't think he feared the lashings of the Romans. I don't think that he, he was you know, shamed by what the Roman soldiers uh, and then the thorn of crowns and all of those types of things. I don't think he was worried about that as much as he was thinking about the wrath of God being poured out upon him for all the sins of those who would believe. And yet, in the midst of this costly salvation, Jesus says essentially, not my will, but yours be done. We, we sang this um, today. I love this song. But when it says, you know, the second verse, how in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. And we won't. We won't know the depths of the travail of our Lord on our behalf. We can't fathom, and, and you know, fathom being a, a nautical term, we don't understand the depth We don't have a gauge that can measure that deep. We have no understanding of what it was like where it says, I may never fully know the fearful weight of true obedience. It was held by him alone. So in the the idea that, that the Lord Jesus was bearing upon himself the weight of everyone's sins upon himself and dying so that we might have life, so that his Father might be glorified, so that sinful man might be reconciled to a holy God. That's the beauty of the gospel. And the separation from the Father for a time, that's what his soul was troubled by. But but I love what it says when it says, but for this purpose, in, in verse 27, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see, Jesus was all about glorifying, glorifying, exalting, praising, making God the Father much greater. Now, that's also what we are called to do. Now, when we, we think about you know, this, um, this idea, judgment, now, um, Again, 
we see this, that this thunderous voice occurs, and it says, and a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what is he talking about? It, and again, he's talking about his name. He's talking about the name of, of Yahweh. He's talking about his plan, who he is, and he's saying, I will be glorified. And one of the ways that he's glorified, and this is difficult for us to get sometimes, is that God is glorified through judging the wicked. Now notice what it says in verse 30. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There's this idea here where the judgment of God, the conquering of sin and death, brings about glory to the Father. I mean, sometimes we don't think about um, the wrath of God being poured out upon the ungodly as something that actually brings about glory to the Father. But anything that, that takes away his, his, or diminishes his holiness or his glory is something that needs to be corrected. And so when God does away with sin, he's glorified. When he judges sin, he's glorified. He's righteous. He's fulfilling this righteousness which is in his character. But we also see that the beauty of the gospel is that not only is God's righteousness and his holiness upheld, but we also see the love of the Father to those who would believe. We see the righteousness and holiness of God and the love of God are brought together on the cross because God makes a way for us to be saved and reconciled and justified. That's the beauty of the gospel. So in the midst of this, his judgment brings about glory. His conquering of the, the, the ruler of this world, and, and we think about the ruler of this world, we're thinking about the idea of Satan, is that he will be glorified because he will stomp down, he will overcome, he will you know, take the, the penalty of sin, and he will break the power of sin. And then he will cast the devil out. We read about that in Revelation. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And, and notice that in this, in, in John chapter 12, the Greeks are the one, ones who are brought to Jesus, and he's speaking about this. So he's speaking about this in a mixed company, and he says, all the peoples of the world. So not just the Jews, but everyone. I will be a blessing. I will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12, 15, and 17 that speaks about the, the seed of Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. I'm fulfilling all of that. So that brothers and sisters will not just be within the Jewish family, but you know, they will be all different of tribes and nations. And it will be glorious because God will bring all those people to himself. Again, this particular passage is all about God bringing glory to himself. Jesus bringing glory to the Father. In John chapter 3, six, verse 16, you know this, but think about this in verse 17. Verse 17, the plan that God had, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the salvation that comes is also the ruination of the ruler of this world, meaning the devil. Now, 
when we think about the idea of God glorifying himself, there's also this word that is used of Jesus. And this particular word, and, and the people are, are, are frustrated. They don't understand what's going on. So in verse 33, he said this to show him by what kind of death he was going to die, meaning that he would be lifted up. I think he's talking about um, in, in the uh, book of Exodus when, when the people are um, uh, attacked by serpents Uh, then uh, Moses actually erects a cross, puts a serpent on the cross, and everybody looks at the cross, and they're healed. This is an Old Testament story. He's talking about being lifted up. There's Old Testament allusions as well as New Testament crosses that we see. But then we have this idea that the crowd is perplexed because they go, how can the Messiah, how can the Christ actually die and save us? Like, we don't understand that. Like, we think of the Messiah being the conquering hero, not the one who would die. So how can the Messiah, or this idea that we see the Son of Man, we have heard, look at verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, who is this son of man? Now, that is a peculiar um, allusion to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13 and 14, uh, we read about the son of man. Uh, and Daniel has a vision, and he has this vision, I saw in the night's vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, meaning to the Lord God, and was presented before him. And to him, meaning the Son of Man, was given dominion and, and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, that one allusion to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 specifically, had been taken in the intertestimonial period, and it had been elaborated upon uh, during the intertestimonial writings. So when the disciples and the Jews and the Greeks of the day are using the term Son of Man, it has sort of a shadowy, Christological perspective. They know that the Son of Man will be someone that they need to revere, and who will come and rule and reign, and will bring about some sort of, of new life for them but they were perplexed as to how it would happen. They had Daniel chapter 7, but they were still perplexed. Jesus actually uses the term son of man to describe himself. It is the most frequent term Jesus speaks about himself. He uses it 96 times in the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John. In John, he uses it 12 different times to refer to himself, that I am the son of man. So when they say, who is this son of man? Who is he? Tell us. Tell us about this one who would come and he will make all things right. This one who will have an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this son of man? I mean, that's what they're asking. Are you him? And Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't give him a straight answer. I'm telling you. I mean, everybody's like, man, I would love to have a conversation with Jesus. And I know that we will have wonderful times of fellowship, but back in the New Testament times, I think that everybody who asked Jesus a question was going to get an answer that they were not looking for. I mean, he constantly was doing that. They're asking a question and he's answering something totally different, right? And he does it again because Jesus is the son of man. He refers to himself as the son of man over and over again. But look at what he says. 
He says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. And at this point, I'm sure the people are like, is it noon? Is it 3 p.m.? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, what time is it, right? The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And I'm sure the people were like, well, yeah. Like, nobody wants to walk in the dark, right? The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So at this point, Jesus isn't talking about the day. He's not talking about the sun, S-U-N, but rather he's talking about the sun, S-O-N, of man. And he begins to use, and John uses this. He uses light and darkness throughout his gospel to describe the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And, and when we think about light in this way, we, we think about it as, as light is actually what brings clarity, what brings guidance, what brings um, what is right, whereas darkness, uh, is, for John, is describing despair, frustration, anger, and confusion. That's what we see. We see this in 1 John. We see this in the Gospel of John, light and darkness. And what Jesus is saying here is this, He's saying, believe in the light. Now, if you remember, earlier Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light. And so what he's saying is, I want you to believe in me. Now, if you believe in me, then you will become sons of the light. You will become those, the people of God who love what is right and will be reconciled to your father. Now, The Apostle Paul picks up on this. He picks up on this in Romans, um, actually in the book of Colossians, where he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus is glorified by rescuing and transferring people from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light, to his Father's kingdom. Um, I memorized that verse in the NIV, and actually actually the NASB, I actually think, I think the ESV um, does a, they they translate it probably correctly, um, but the NASB actually says, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, actually, I don't use this very often, but Eugene Peterson's um, um, transliteration of, of the Bible says this about this particular verse, that God rescued us from dead end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the son he loves so much, the son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. That's what we think about when the Son of Man is glorified as we think about the great rescue effort that occurred to save us. 
one of the things, um, so just so you know, um, I mean, some of you might, may or may not know this, but I'm actually a chaplain over at Forbes Field, uh, and I do that on Friday and Saturday once a month. So whenever I'm shaved, that's because I had to be on duty. The federal government pays me to shave. That's pretty much what it costs. You know? And then I, I get to tell people about Jesus. I can't believe that the federal government asks me to come on base to do a mission trip to airmen in the Air Force and to tell them about Jesus, and then they pay me to do it. It's ridiculous. It's like this reverse mission trip anyway. But in the midst of um, the Air Force, um, the, the special operators within the Air Force, um, we have what, uh, TACPs, uh, and then we have um, combat controllers, but there's a, a group called the PJs, and they're pararescue jumpers in the Air Force. And these guys go through you know, amazing amounts of training. Uh, they have to do a lot of times swimming. Uh, they do a lot of times doing um, high altitude um, parachute jumping. They go through SEER training. But here's their job. Their sole job is to rescue other soldiers because they're all paramedics. They're all paramedics. So not only are you a special operator and you go through all the weapons training and you go through all the special operator training and you go through this high altitude uh, parachute and what you're doing is, and this is what I love, like when I meet people in the Navy, uh, they talk about the SEALs. When I, when I meet people in the Army, they talk about the Green Berets. When I meet people in the Marine Corps, they talk about a recon, right? And I was like, yeah, but when you guys get in trouble, do you know who saves them all? It's the PJs. The Air Force saves you when you get in trouble. So when the SEALs get in trouble, the PJs come in, they, they jump out of you know, airplanes from high altitudes, come down, they patch up the SEALs, they have a, a ready evac, and then they, you know, they come in and then they save um, the SEALs, the Green Berets, the recon, and whoever else might be in trouble. Now in the midst of that, you know, we think about that. When they come back, I mean, there's, uh, they, they wear like these uh, maroon berets. Uh, and so everybody sort of is in awe of them. And they're in awe of them because a, a maroon beret in the Air Force means that you're a PJ. It means that there's, um, and really there's this exalted view of you because you've gone through all this training and you've saved the lives of a lot of people. Especially when you see older you know, PJs who've, who've really saved and, and been shot at um, a lot. Um, there's sort of this veneration of them. And you see, there's glory that comes with saving others. There's, there's great glory that occurs. And so when, when we think about, you know, Jesus, Jesus really is the ultimate PJ. Did he come from a high altitude? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> he came from heaven. And he came to deliver us from our sins. He came to save us and to bind us up and to fix us and to take out a heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. You see, all glory is given to the Son of Man as He brings us into, He rescues us. That's why I, that's why I like the term rescue rather than deliver. The ESV in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says deliver. I don't like to think of Jesus as Sam the UPS man. I like to think of Jesus as like, um, you know, um, Sam the PJ 
who rescues us. Again, what, what Eugene Peterson says, you know, he says, he rescued us from dead end alleys. I mean, brothers and sisters, how many dead ends have you been in? And the dungeons and the dark dungeons, he set us up in the kingdom of the son he loved so much. The son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. And then he saves us, loves us, and sets us up as a part of the family of God. You see, Jesus is glorified, and his role is to glorify the Father. And Jesus knows that not my will, but yours be done. And I will die to self so that I can glorify the Father. And that's what we're called to do. Now, before us today, we have the table of the Lord. And he invites those who trust and believe in Jesus for their salvation to come and partake. And this bread represents his body broken for sin. Because Jesus' body was broken for you. And this cup represents um, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites all those who trust and believe to partake. And every time we participate in this supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. And the reason that we proclaim his death is because in his death, we have life. We have life in Christ because of his death on our behalf. So he invites all those to come. Now this bread will always remain bread and this juice will always remain juice. But what it does is it signifies something far greater. It signifies what Jesus has done for us. It signifies the rescue mission on our behalf to redeem us out of our own sinfulness, out of the pit of our own sins. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would bless these elements. Father, that, that you would bless us as we come forward, that we would know that we are saved because of the rescue mission that Jesus took on our behalf, and that we would love him more and more. So, Father, would you help us? Help us to believe and trust. Father, help us to die to self. And, Father, if you are calling us to do something today for your kingdom, for your glory, I pray, Lord, that we would do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the courage that Christ gives us. Father, you give us all things. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would give ourselves for you. Father, help us. Save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.